living the word today. So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what he wants to say to us. Livingthewordtoday.com. Look, the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living. Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. And as we look at this, I think we're going to face some things that we need to face as well as we think about our Lord. Now imagine if you were on trial for your life. I mean, this is serious business, and you are called to say something in your own defense. You know, now's your time to say whatever. Well, Jesus is at that moment. He is on trial for his life because we know the rest of the story. We know the, the back story, and I'll give you a little bit of that backstory as we go through this text today. But also I want you to understand that he indeed is on trial for his life. And it's very interesting what he says, what he does, that it brings us to this reality that he comes to a moment that forces those that were listening to him when he spoke these words that Matthew records. It brings them to make a choice, a choice of whether to believe or reject, a choice of whether to have faith or just trust in what your eyes see and what your mind can perceive, to do what you want to do or to come to this sense and understanding that there's something that God wants us indeed to do. Let's take a look at that, if you will. And if you go to verse 57 in the text today, Matthew 26, 57. Uh, there's nothing on the screen. There's no slides for you today. We just are going to... It's going to be you and I in the Bible for a while, okay? I, I like doing it that way, too. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So he's been arrested. That's earlier in this chapter. Betrayed by Judas, as you well know that story, perhaps. And he's taken to the high priest. Now, there's, a, there's some di two different names you just need to understand. Here's a little backstory. Uh, the high priest that he was taken to was, the name, was named Caiaphas. Another gospel writer will say he was first taken to the home of one named Annas. Typically, in the Old Testament, the way God set it up, a high priest was a high priest until he died. It was a lifetime office. When the Romans now have taken over, and the Romans are really calling the shots, but just to kind of appease the people that they were ruling over, you can have a little bit of freedom, you can do your own thing. As long as the tax money is flowing back to Rome and you don't cause trouble. That was the two things they insisted on. But they required that a high priest only serve for a term and then it's replaced because they always wanted to make sure that somebody in that position, which was the highest position in, in the religion of the Jews and also the society of the Jews, so it was both political, governmental, and religion all in one, they wanted to make sure someone in that position was friendly to Rome. So what happened was Annas was, the, was a ruler for a while, and then after his term was up, his next son becomes the ruler, and then another son, then another son, another son. And when we come to Jesus' time, Caiaphas is his son-in-law. It's all in the family, okay? It's all there. So Annas was the one kind of pulling the strings, and he had his sons and now his son-in-law doing that. We have the story that says that Peter followed him at a distance 
to the high priest's courtyard and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now that story will pick up again in verse 69 with Peter. That's not our purpose today. 59, uh, excuse me, verse 69, 59 now. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now one of the things you need to understand was that this trial, quote unquote, was illegal all the way through, even according to Jewish custom and Jewish law. Let me just give you a quick rundown. All right, first of all, the, the, the council that's mentioned here, and the elders and so forth, the council is what we know in history as the Sanhedrin. It was composed of 71 people, but only 23 had to be there for a quorum, and we're, there's a suspicion that probably those that were invited to come were those that were going to be favorable to the outcome the high priest wanted. Uh, trials had to take place in daytime. It had to be completed during daytime. They were absolutely not allowed to take place on the Passover or any Jewish religious holiday. The buzzer goes off, okay? All right. Only a verdict of not guilty could that sentence be passed on the day that the, that, the, that the verdict was reached. If someone was found guilty, they would wait at least 24 hours before the sentence was carried out to allow time that maybe some feelings of mercy might come and the, you know, might cool down a little bit. That doesn't take place. No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it met in its own place, which was called the Hall of Hewn Stone in the temple. This is taking place in the house of the high priest. All, witnesses had to be, all evidence had to be guaranteed by witnesses who were examined separately. That doesn't take place in this story. And having no contact with, with each other. Still further, any trial, the process began by the laying before the court the evidence for innocence for the accused before the evidence of guilt was in, in, in introduced. So there's absolutely no justice here. There's no, it's just sort of a sham trial. Can we say it that way? It says in 60, but found none, speaking of those witnesses. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two witnesses came, came forward and said, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? By the way, that was a statement that Jesus made approximately three and a half years before these events. It doesn't say he's going to destroy the temple. It doesn't say anything about it. It said he has that ability, which you and I know that he does. And basically he was talking about the temple of his own body. And it's sort of a precursor to the resurrection. So he says, do you not answer anything? Are you going to say anything? It says in 63, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Let's just get right to it. Let's get to the point. Are you the Christ? That's another way for, word for Messiah, if you have an Old Testament understanding. Are you the one sent from God? And are you the Son of God? And they understood the Son of God meant synonymous with God. You were claiming divinity. You were claiming deity. You were claiming to be God if you were declared to be the Son of God. So he asked them this question. Now, there's something very interesting in this statement, this question, this challenge of the high priest. Did you see it there? I put you under oath by... The living God tells if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I put you under oath by all the authority and all the power, and I'm the high priest, I'm the highest representative on, on earth of people to God, and I'm the one that's the closest to God, so, so to speak. That was the perception. I put you under oath by the living God. Is it not chilling when you consider he's looking into the face? of the living God. The statement itself self-condemns him in this statement. And then eventually we come to verse 64, which is 
Jesus' statement. Now he's going to have the chance to say what he wants to say. There's several things that he doesn't say. There's several things that don't take place in this. There are no words of defense. No, you got it all wrong. Let me explain it to you. No, that's not what I meant. Let me give you another understanding of it. Oh, here's why I did that. None of that. There's no defense. He doesn't even cry out. He doesn't even complain about the injustice of it. Why are you trying me this way? Why are you trying me in this court? Why is, you know, what have I done? He doesn't, he doesn't bring any facts to kind of counteract the accusations. What about all the people I've healed? What about the fact that I've always preached publicly in the temple and you had to arrange to have me arrest, arrested under the darkness of night, under the cover of darkness of night? There's no statement of injustice. There's no words of reprisal. You do this, you're going to get it. I'm going to get back. Uh, you know, they're going to cause, it's going to cause you trouble if this happens. There's no reprisal. There's no threat. There's no defense. There's no cry of injustice. At this particular moment, all the disciples have scattered. Now, Peter is nearby. Of course, you go down to verses 69 through 75, you're going to find out that Jesus is, that he's called to be accused of being a follower of Jesus, and he winds up denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And finally, the rooster crows at the dawn of that new day. And he's followed this path of rejection or denying him. So there's no one coming. It appears this way. It appears that Jesus is absolutely helpless. He's surrounded by his enemies. There's no one there to help him. The high priest has accused him. They're wanting to put him to death. That's the whole plan. It's been the whole plan since chapter 11 of John, if you're tracking from John's gospel through. From the time he raised Lazarus from the dead, that was the last straw. We've got to have a member of the high priest also says some other chilling words. It's better for one to die than the whole nation to perish. In actuality, and by the way, John even calls this out. He was really speaking the truth. It was better for one to die for all of us than for all of us to perish without a Savior. So it looks helpless. He looks friendless. He looks absolutely hopeless. And then he makes this statement. 64. And this is what I want to look at today. Jesus said to him, it is as you say. In other words, I'm not denying it. I'm not taking away from it. It's not an out and out. Yes, that's exactly true. That's exactly what I said. He just sort of, you know, I'll, I'll consent to the statement that you made. And then he says these words. These words bring this group of people to a point of, am I going to believe or am I going to reject? Am I going to have faith or am I going to follow my own path? And in so doing, they were sealing their fate not only in lifetime, not only in the annals of history that we still read all these years later, but sealing their fate for all eternity. This question, this moment demands a choice of faith. And I suggest to you it is no different today than it was all those years ago. This demands a choice of faith. 64 again. It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Period. End of statement. Done. Now if you didn't know some backstory, and I'll give you some more backstory in just a moment, you might say, what does that have anything to do with whether he's going to be crucified on the day that this takes place? What's this have to do with anything that Jesus was preaching about? Well, it has a lot to say. And he brings it forth with this claim. Now, I assure you that the high priest would have known something about what that meant. 
because they were students of the Old Testament scriptures. By the way, the high priests during Jesus' time were all Sadducees. And if you know anything about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were these two, maybe we would call them rival religious parties as opposed to a political party, although they were certainly political. The Pharisees believed in every word of the scriptures and they then added on to the scriptures things that were never intended. The Sadducees detracted from the scriptures. They just believed in the law of Moses and the prophets. Well, maybe not so much, but you have to know a little bit about them. They did not believe in the resurrection. Remember, that's one thing that, 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 that kind of tore them up. So the Sadducee would have known the scriptures. And there's a passage that I want to read to you from Daniel chapter 7. And just listen carefully. This is the prophet Daniel speaking about what God is going to do yet future. In this vision, he says this. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and brought them near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, he talks about the Ancient of Days here. He talks about the Son of Man here. This is all prophetic of the Messiah. So Jesus dips into their background cultural mindset, their religious understanding, and basically takes that imagery of coming in the clouds, the ancients of days, and he inserts it into this text where he says, sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He also takes another passage, and I'll read this to you right now. This is from Psalm 110, the first two verses. The Lord said to my Lord, Father to Son, if you want to say it that way, sit at my right hand, Till I, make your, till I make your enemies your footstool, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion to rule in the midst of your enemies. Two aspects of the Old Testament. The ancient of days, this, this son of man, and that's the terms that Jesus uses himself in this text, is going to come in the clouds of glory, come in the clouds of even heaven itself, return to this earth, and set up an eternal kingdom. Also inherent in that, he's also going to sit at the right hand of God, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus is saying three things in this statement. He's saying, first of all, it's going to require a death, a resurrection, and ascension to get him to that point where he's seated at the right hand of God. Multiple times from this point on throughout the New Testament, Jesus is pictured as seated at the right hand. He's at the right hand of God, the right hand of power. He is seated there. And that, in their culture understanding, was that whoever sat at the right hand of the king was elevated to second in command with all the glory and all the power and all the authority of the king. Even today, we talk about that. He's, a, he's his right-hand man. We, we still have that kind of concept in our cultural understanding today. Resurrection, ascension, excuse me, death, resurrection, ascension. That's all going to take place in the next three days in the high priest's life. The question is, Mr. High Priest, are you going to believe that? Are you going to accept that? Are you going to reject that? One more time, the statement. It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. Jesus now flashes forward. This is what he claims. He's not talking about anything that's happened in the past. This is what's going to happen in the future. He's saying, I am that son of man. I do have the right to rule. And someday it's going to be like this, seated at the right hand of God, having authority. 
coming in the clouds of glory to bring that authority to this earth and all the kingdoms of the world will be, be overshadowed, overtaken, destroyed, and he has a kingdom that lasts forever. That's what's going to take place. You want to know who I am? That's what's on the books. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes, saying he has spoken blasphemy. By the way, back in Leviticus, where God was giving instruction to the high priest, it says explicitly in Leviticus, a high priest was never allowed to tear his clothes. Now, the tearing clothes was how they would express anguish. If someone died or something just really stressful, you'd tear a bit of your garment just to show that you're undone and kind of destroyed emotionally. The high priest was never allowed to do that because he was supposed to be under God's authority and God always controls everything and there is no anguish in God's sphere of influence that should cause that kind of anguish. But he tears his clothes saying he has spoken blasphemy. Blasphemy is saying something outrageously bad and wrong about God. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said he is deserving of death. question by them was answered with a big thumbs down. He claims to be God. He claims a kingdom. He claims a seat at the right hand of God. All of that, no, 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 no. They then mistreat him. They spit on him. They, 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 they slap him with their palms. He's later then taken to Pilate because Pilate was the Roman governor. Even though they wanted to put him to death, they wanted to have the stamp of approval of Rome because they didn't want to get in trouble with Rome. And then you know the rest of the story. But there's a particular words, a particular few words, a little phrase tucked into verse 64 I want you to look at. It's right in the middle. I didn't emphasize them as we went because I wanted to save it for now. It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man see, sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He sees the right hand. Someday he's going to come back. He's going to take over the world. His kingdom is the everlasting kingdom. But that little phrase, you will see. Is that, just, is that poetic? Is that some sort of rhetorical device? You will see. You, you know, someday everybody's going to see. Or everybody will know. Can I give you a suggestion? I'm not sure I could prove it. I'm not sure I could just give you a chapter and verse to nail this down. But based on the language taking in its plain reading, this is what I wanna, want you to think about. I think God is going to so arrange this particular moment that the living will see it, that the dead will see it, the righteous will see it, the lost will see it, the angels will see it, the demons will see it, and Satan will see it, and everyone will see it. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds, having this everlasting kingdom. You see, he calls us at this moment to accept that by faith. Someday it will be sight. For those who have, re have received and responded in faith, It'll be a moment of joyous completion of what God has promised centuries and millennia ago. For those who are lost, it'll be too late. But a recognition of the chance that was had and a chance that was missed. 
we're at a moment of, of, of deciding today whether we're going to respond in faith or not. This moment demands a choice of faith. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, that's one thing, but let me just take a moment. Just perhaps there's someone that's still an open question or you're not a believer in Christ. You never trust him for your salvation. The fact that Jesus said that, you've got to do something with it. It calls for a response. A non-response is a response. You can say, you know what, I, I just don't want to deal with that. I just, I, I'll just block that out of my mind. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus claimed and Jesus will perform seated at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds, setting up a kingdom, and he is the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, God in flesh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is who he is. You can say, no, I actively reject that. I actively reject that. I don't believe, that's just words on a page, that's some myth that was written a long time ago. You know, maybe there was a guy named Jesus and he died on a cross, but all the rest of that miracle hocus pocus stuff. I just, I, my, my mind, my skeptical mind says that can't be. I'm, I'm going to rule out the supernatural here and I just want to live in the world that I can touch, feel, see, hear, understand, contemplate and figure out. Well, that's a response. By the way, the same response of the high priest. But what if that statement is true? I have absolutely zero, zero reason to believe it is not true. I have multiple reason after multiple reason after multiple reason to believe it is true. I think it's very reasonable to believe, but it does require some faith. This moment, this statement is a moment that demands a choice of faith. Let me just take, take a moment and say this is what happens if you would choose to believe. What will happen is you will see that someday in a moment of victory and joy rather than a moment of, a moment of horror. And not only that, God wants to be working on changing your life now. And for you as a believer, let me just add you into the equation for just a moment. Every moment with our Lord is a moment that demands a choice of faith. A moment when we are struck with our fears. I am so scared. I just, I don't know about the future. I don't know about whatever it is, whatever it comes in. This scary moment, this opportunity, this challenge, this enemy, whatever it is. Our moment of fear, it calls for us to say, are we going to believe that he's the son of man? That he's seated at the right hand of glory? And we talked a while back, we did a study on all the things that he's doing there. He's, he's at the right hand of God. He prays for us. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. He's anxiously looking forward to the day that he comes back to collect us and take us to be into his kingdom forever. Are we going to operate on faith? Every moment of our lives, every challenge to our faith brings us back to this place to say, you know what? It demands a choice of faith. If we're believers in Christ and sometimes, have you noticed we still struggle with temptation? Have you noticed that? Am I shocking anybody here? Have you noticed that sin is ever present and we can still slip into it just like that? A thought, a word, an action, a response. We understand that. But every temptation, every time when we struggle with sin in our life, that's a moment that demands a choice of faith. I'm going to believe God's strong enough that he's going to provide a way of escape, that he's going to empower me to do differently. Or maybe if you're looking at it after the fact and you've messed up, to just come back and say, Lord, I know that's under the blood. I confess that I've sinned. I want to have my sweet communion with you restored, but it's under the blood. 
choice of faith. I don't know what you're, I don't, I, I'm not a mind reader. I, I confess that freely. I do know about people. I know a little bit about this person and what goes on in his mind and heart. And I know there's always moments that challenge us to take the wrong step into sin. That pushes us to take the wrong step to descend into fear or hopelessness. Just say, I'm living in a chaos that there's no one in control. I'm spinning out of control. Is life even worth living? That's a moment. That's a moment that demands us to live by faith. Just hear the words of the Lord. May this just prepare our hearts for what we're about to do. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It demands a choice of faith. Believer, let's just live by faith. Let's live trusting in him. Let's renew our trust in him, even as we gather around the table. If you don't know him, we'd love to introduce you to him. We'd love to have a conversation, share Christ with you. Pastor Adam will be here at the front. I'll be around. Maybe if you come with a Christian friend, they could have that same conversation with you. We could do it even not today. We could do it whenever it's convenient. But don't put off that decision. Now, I do that passage for a couple of reasons. One, I've been fascinated with it for some time, so it's been on my mind and heart. But also, I think it's a good preparation for what we're about to do. Because sometimes we come to the table, and yes, we take a piece of bread, and we see it as a picture of his body broken. We have a little bit of juice, which is a picture of his blood shed. Jesus said to do this and show this and show forth his death till he comes. But someday he comes. And may we remember that this is not a statement of a remembrance of, of, of defeat. But it's a remembrance of victory. And victory won, yes, for our salvation. And victory yet to come when all will see, when you will see. You see it at the right hand of God. Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you. And the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.